we started three weeks ago a series of lessons in the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis. We called it Beginning. And we're looking at some of the most important, some of the most critical themes, not only in the Bible, but for our lives spiritually. We began a kind of mini-series within a series last week where we were talking about, you know, what's up, what's wrong with our world? And we're continuing that today in what is probably one of the most important passages in the entire Bible, Genesis chapter 3, and and we'll continue that next week in Genesis chapter 4. But this morning I'm going to finish reading Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to continue our discussion about sin. So you came this morning for some really good news. Genesis 3, verses 8 through the end of the chapter, 8 through 24. And if you would, this morning, out of reverence for God's Word, let's go old school and stand with me. And I'm going to read Genesis 3, 8 through 24. And I want you to listen for some echoes of some really powerful, critically important themes for, you know, what's up with us. I guess you'd say why we feel sometimes at odds with our world with one another, with ourselves, certainly with God. So, Genesis 3, 8 through 24. If if you haven't been to church in a long time, you'll probably remember a little of this story. Adam and Eve have just bitten from the apple. Verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what's this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food, and you will return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. You may be seated. 
Christian apologist and author named Peter Kreft was writing about the idea of human sin, and he made reference to the icon of the Mac. And he said, by the way, if you get mad at your Mac laptop and wonder who designed this demonic device, notice the manufacturer's icon on top, an apple with a bite out of it. He's, of course, making reference to this story. Last week, we talked about the process of sin. We discussed how we get to the place of both defying our own conscience and committing cosmic treason against an utterly holy God. We noted that the process of sin starts with the kind of attitude adjustment that accommodates a stretch of the truth, which in turn welcomes a lie about God and about ourselves. And once the lie is entertained, we said we're softened up to consider the benefits of our treason. That consideration inevitably leads to desire, which finds its satisfaction in treasonous action. We also noted that what God wants from us is, first of all, surrender, for us to let go of our own worry and our angst, to let go of the notion that it all depends on us, that we have to make it happen. Secondly, God wants recognition. He wants us to see the truth about ourselves and to acknowledge Him especially when he comes after us, which he's doing. And finally, we said that he wants trust. He wants us to lean into him, to fall on him, to believe in him. So today, we're going to look at a further analysis of this process of what's wrong with us in our world. We're going to look at the essence of sin. What is it at its heart? We're going to look at the extent of sin, the breadth of it and the depth of it. And we're going to look at the consequences of sin. Some of you have heard of Friedrich Nietzsche. He was a 19th century German philosopher. And Nietzsche hated religion, especially Christian religion, because Nietzsche thought that religion, Christianity in particular, made men weak. And he thought it was naive. And I know that Nietzsche said some profound things, and he's probably been helpful to many people. But about this, I completely disagree. I think, in fact, it's almost the exact opposite. I think Christianity simply recognizes that we are essentially weak. And far from being naive, I think Christians have a fairly, honestly, a fairly dark view of human nature and also an accurate one. So the essence of sin, what's the heart of sin? What is it? Well, of course, God comes into the garden, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and that is the ancient Near Eastern way of saying God is looking to hang out. God's looking for relationships. That's why the author here teases this out with such elaborate, neat language. God's walking in the garden in the cool of the day because he's looking for Adam. This is our time, Adam, to sit down and chat. Of course, God knows what's happened and doesn't see him. So God says, the Lord God says, where are you, Adam? And Adam says, "Uh, I'm hiding because I'm naked. How did this happen, Adam? And Adam does what all of us do in our sin, right? Adam says, it's the woman. But worse, Adam says, God, it's that woman you gave me. So he blames it on Eve, but ultimately... Adam finds a way to blame what he's done on God. 
God goes after Eve and says, Eve, what about you? And Eve says, "Uh, it's the serpent. Blame him. I read a quote this week from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Some of you heard of him. He was mid-20th century Russian author and dissident. And he spent half of his adult life in Soviet prisons under Stalin, partly being tortured. And during that time, especially the worst part of the time, later in his time in prison, Solzhenitsyn became a Christian and completely changed his worldview. He was asked later, when he was in the West at one point in an interview, how could people do that to one another? How did that happen? What happened to you, Mr. Solzhenitsyn? How did that happen? And Solzhenitsyn said, it's it's in the nature of human beings. It's in the nature of human beings to seek a justification for his action. The essence of sin, I think, is self-justification. Now, of course, this is from a horizontal perspective. This is my relationship with your relationship. Last week, we talked about you know, what's happened in my relationship with God, and we called it treason. But in my relationship with you, the essence of sin, the heart of it, is self-justification. See, I've got to expose you, or I've got to exploit you, or I've got to drain you with my neediness or my want or my whatever, my stories. I've got to disadvantage you so that I can have what I want. It's about me. I've got to justify myself. Sometimes we do this directly through criticism or blame shifting. Sometimes we do it indirectly through judgment or condescension. But I have to justify myself and my position That's the essence of sin. I have to make myself look bigger in your eyes or my eyes. I have to make myself look okay. I have to make myself look worthy. I have to make myself look respectable. This is the essence. This is what drives murder. This drives everything that goes man to man, woman to woman, woman to man. This is the heart of sin. C.S. Lewis wrote a book that some of you have read. It's called The Screwtape Letters, and it's a fictional book where a senior devil is training junior devils how to go tempt human beings and spoil human nature, really take advantage of what we're talking about, the, the nature of human beings that's bent in the wrong direction. And Screwtape, the senior devil, says this to a, a junior devil that he should encourage One particular human emotion. This is what he says. He should encourage the human emotion, I'm as good as you. And this is what Screwtape says. The feeling I'm talking about is the feeling which prompts a person to say, I'm as good as you. Anyone who says, I'm as good as you, does not believe it. The St. Bernard never says to the toy dog, I'm as good as you. He doesn't need to. This sentiment is useful as a destruction of whole societies, but it has far deeper value as a state of mind which necessarily excluding humility, charity, contentment, and all pleasures of gratitude and admiration, it turns a human being away from every road which might lead him to heaven. This is the essence of sin. I'm as good as you. Who do you think you are at all cost? I must avoid all cost to me, no matter what endeavor you're involved in. I'm as good as you. This is the essence of sin. This is still true today, of course, right? What I mean is this. Not only is this still the essence of sin for us, but it's prevailingly true of us today. We'll go further in a moment about that, but 
pause for a parenthesis here. Remember, if you were here last week, we said that this story in Genesis 3 is for us. One of the things we noted is that's why the author doesn't give us an introduction to Satan or really any explanation about him. He doesn't tell us how he manifested as a snake or why because this story is not an interpretation of the serpent. This story is for us and it's about us. This is about the human condition. This is explaining you and I. C.E.M. Joad, I don't know if you know that name, but he was a mid-20th century British philosopher. And he was an atheist who late in his life he came to faith. And he wrote a book called The Recovery of Belief. Listen to this. This is fascinating. He said, It was because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we on the left were always being disillusioned both by the people and the nations and their politicians and by the recurrent fact of war. Because we on the left rejected the doctrine of original sin, we kept thinking things would get better because basically people are good and they need to be educated. And somehow... War and horror kept recurring. And we were disillusioned because we rejected the doctrine of original sin. This is what, over the century, Christians have come to call this notion. That there is within us, buried within us at the heart of who we are, a bent nature that seeks its own justification. And that is the essence. Once it bubbles out to the core, that is the essence of everything that's wrong, man to man, woman to woman, woman to man. Of course, what we've been alluding to is the doctrine of original sin. Without it, C.E.M. Joe didn't know how to live his life effectively. He set out in the wrong direction, processing wrong ideas because he had rejected the notion of original sin he arrived at wrong solutions now you and i of course we know there are two really more than that but at the grand scheme of things there are two overarching alternative views to the christian doctrine of original sin one is Paganism. We don't call it paganism anymore, but it's still the foundational view. And according to paganism, God is in us. I don't mean that in the sense that the follower of Christ might say, you know, God dwells in me. I mean that God's very essence is in us, that the divine is in us, that we participate actually in the that we ourselves become divine. So we are essentially at our core good. According to paganism then, sin, I put it in air quotes because they wouldn't use that kind of language, but sin is not a violation against an absolute moral code in the universe. There is no such thing. Sin instead is its mistakes that you and I travel into because they're born out of poor education or poor opportunities. So what we need to do to address these mistakes is educate or bring the right amount of opportunity to everyone and then we'll have progress. These human mistakes will go away. A second alternative is, of course, pantheism. 
and many Eastern religions participate in or grow out of pantheism. And what, where paganism said God is in us, pantheism says we are in God. In fact, it's all one. Everything is essentially one. There is no duality, light, dark, right, wrong. This is the wrong way of thinking according to pantheism. There are no dualities. There really is no sin. We are either moving toward or away from the source of all being, and what appears to us as sin is just an illusion. You may not agree with me this morning, but I want to suggest that these philosophies are woefully inadequate in explaining the world as it really is. I think C.E.M. Jode touched on that. You know, he woke up in the middle of his life and he realized that his entire worldview did not represent the world as it really is. Very terrible things happen. We do very terrible things to one another. Frequently, and regardless of how much we seem to progress or how much we invest in education or how enlightened we become, we continue to do terrible things. Plus, we often feel badly about those things when we do them. Pause there. We often feel badly about the terrible things that we do. We don't feel badly at the initial level of self-justification because that's part of our nature. But when that self-justification bubbles up to the surface and we eventually end up acting in some wrong way on that self-justification, we end up feeling bad. We feel at odds with ourselves. In fact, this feeling is so prevailingly true that psychiatrists will tell us that it's not normal to not feel badly when we do terrible things. So how do we make sense of a world and how are we to deal with our own sense of guilt and sometimes shame? How are we to make sense of a world in which this is the reality? Well, I think through the Christian doctrine of original sin and through God's solution to it, we begin to address it. We begin to see it. We begin to understand it. A solution is presented to us, a real solution for the real world. Thomas Merton was a mid-20th century monk, a Trappist monk and an author. He wrote a book called No Man is an Island. And Thomas Merton said this, One of the effects of original sin is an instinctive prejudice in favor of our own selfish desires. Self-justification. We see things as they are not. Because we see them centered on ourselves. Fear, anxiety, greed, ambition, and our hopeless need for pleasure all distort the image of reality that's reflected in our minds. Grace does not completely correct this distortion all at once, but it gives us a means of recognizing and allowing for it, and it tells us what we must do to correct it. Sincerity must be bought at a price. The humility to recognize our innumerable errors and the fidelity in tirelessly setting them right. We'll get to the end part of that in a few moments. The essence of sin, self-justification. So let's look secondly at the extent of sin, the width of sin and the breadth of sin. First of all, it covers everything. It covers everything. Verse 15b in this, we find that there's going to be enmity between the woman and the serpent. So in other words, as a result of this act of treason, 
we end up with a kind of spiritual enmity. There is a part of the spiritual world, and I absolutely believe that there is a spiritual world all around us, and there is a part of that spiritual world with which you and I are at war. And you cannot fully understand your life and all that goes on in your life without knowing that there's a part of the spiritual world that sets itself against us and us against it. There's enmity. There's fighting. Secondly, there's difficulty in succeeding generation. That's what God is hinting at when he says, when you have children, there's going to be pain involved. This isn't going to be an easy process. With each generation, there's going to be pain. Succeeding generations are going to turn against one another. There's going to be tension in human relationships, he goes on. Specifically in the relationship between husband and wife, it's going to be out of balance. Do you know, when Eve was created, God called her a helpmate. We sometimes think of that as, oh, nice Eve, she got to help Adam. You know, that word is used dozens of times in the Old Testament, usually for God. You don't think of God as, oh, he gets to help us. Clearly, God did not have in in mind for the relationship between Adam and Eve, the relationship that we've often ended up with, with husband and wife. It's been suggested by many Christian authors that the root of sexism is this. Of course, the essence of it is our self-justification, but we end up in a sexist relationship because of our sin That relationship got off kilter, and it was dramatically tilted. There's now tension in it. There's difficulty in our relationship with the earth. We're going to toil over the earth, and what it's going to produce for us is thorns and thistles, when it should produce, I don't know, flowers or whatever. There's going to be a lack of productivity in our lives. We'll only get what we get by the sweat of our brow, God acknowledges. This is our subjective experience. This is how we feel. The extent of sin is it covers everything. Everything that you relate to is impacted by the nature within you and I, the hard wiring that's bent in a direction towards self-justification. It doesn't see the world as it really is. It sees the world, our nature sees the world as centered around itself. This is our subjective experience. This is how we feel. We feel like, as one Christian psychiatrist said, something is wrong with everything. Original sin. Look, the idea of original sin, and nowhere in the Bible does it suggest that everything we do is bad and wrong and awful. That's not what's being said. It's not what's being explained, and it's not the reality. But it means that taken as a whole, there is at least a little something wrong with all that we produce. Because it comes out of a nature that's bent. So even our most elegant productions, nations, buildings, marriages, relationships, children, parents, there's a little something off in everything we produce because our natures are bent toward ourselves. Original sin covers everything. It also covers, get this, everybody. The woman sins. And then isn't it interesting, we talk about this a lot at Gateway. It's our mission at Gateway. If you're visiting with us, thanks for coming. If you've been coming for a few weeks or months, I want you to know that we believe God has brought us here to draw others into authentic Christian community. So I want you to know, we don't want you to sit and be anonymous. And if that's what you want, awesome. Keep coming. 
But eventually we're going to start bugging you. Because we want you to jump in. We want you to get involved. We want you to get involved because, let's be honest, we need your help. We also want you to get involved because you need it. You need it. It's what you're wired for. It's how God made you. And you see it here from the very beginning. What does Eve want when she sins? Immediately, she wants community. She's done something terribly wrong, and she wants community. And Adam gives it to her. Adam joins her. The sin covered the woman and the man. All of us have this experience. We are hardwired for it. It's everybody. C.S. Lewis, again, has this illustration. I couldn't find it because I can't remember what book it's in. So I don't remember the name of the dog, but he has this illustration for this doctrine of original sin. He tells us to imagine a master who lives on a beautiful estate and his dog. And the dog has a perfect, constant, all day long, every day connection with the master. They play together. They run together. He smells the master's hand. The master feeds him. Every day, every time, every need is met by the master. He can go wherever he wants to go. He has free reign, bark, run, jump leap, whatever. And it's this great relationship with the master on this huge estate. There is a fence at the far edge of the estate. And the only thing is the dog can't go beyond the fence. But beyond the fence, it's wild woods. And besides, the master feeds him everything he needs. So why would he want to go on the other side of the fence? Of course, he doesn't. Until one day... He's out frolicking, running with the master, and he sees a rabbit running on the other side of the fence. The master sees what a distraction this is because it's almost mealtime. The master says, come, we'll call him Mike. Come, Mike. And C.S. Lewis describes this beautifully. The dog, for the first time, pauses and considers before immediately obeying. What's at the other end? The hand of his master. Everything he's ever needed and wanted, all the joy he wants, and the food that's provided for him by the master. What's on the other side? This curiosity. What is it? But then he turns and he comes back to the master and he describes two or three more scenes just like that until eventually, Mike's frolicking one day, he sees the rabbit running Master says, come, Mike, and Mike pauses, considers, feels the desire, and the process of sin has begun, and he runs and leaps over the fence and follows the rabbit and gets lost in the woods. And Lewis says, we are Mike's puppies. We're in the woods finding our own food, foraging through nature, knotted teeth, matted hair, no one to comb us, no one to feed us, some of us scraggly, others of us not. We're not all equally mangy, but we're all mangy. We are Mike's puppies running in the woods. All of us. This is what the Apostle Paul in the New Testament meant when he said, all of us have sinned. It took him three chapters to build to this climax. Then he levels us. And that's what he does. He levels us. 
He says, all of us have sinned and fall short. You Jews, you think it, you think the Gentiles. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And on the left, we acknowledged, on the left, they think the problem is with the elites or big business or classic liberalism would say it's the aristocracy. Cut their heads off. That'll solve our problems. But I don't want you to think that I'm I want to be an equal opportunity offender. Because on the right, we think that the problem is classic right conservatism. We think the problem is the the hoi polloi or the common man. Or, you know, over here you have the noble savage. Over here you've got, get a job. Stop trying to get into our country. That's our problem. It's the common man. And there's a democracy at the foot of Jesus' cross. The original sin levels us all. We're all covered. Everything and everybody. We're even. This is the doctrine of original sin. Can you see why this is so important to get? Can you see why this isn't just some idea? Because when we begin to get this, we truly start to have grace for one another. We have grace for our terrible boss or our terrible coworker, or our terrible teacher, or terrible coach. We have grace. Because it's us too. The extent, it covers everything and everybody. There's something wrong with everything we produce. How about the consequences? So what happens as a result of this process? Well, in short, we're separated and we die. And let's be quick. What we just discussed was our subjective experience. This is how we feel. We are at odds with God. We are at odds with our husband or our wife or the people we're in relationship with. We're at odds with the earth. We're at odds with our own productivity. We're at odds with ourselves. That's how we feel. And this is one of those rare times when how we feel is a pretty fair, it's a good gauge of reality. We feel at odds with one another, with our environment, with God, and in fact, we are. Objectively, the reality is we are at odds. The consequence of our sin is that we put ourselves at odds with one another. We are in broken or disturbed relationships where there is angst where there should not be. There is conflict where there should not be. There is selfishness where there should not be. We are at odds with the earth. In fact, the Apostle Paul has this weird thing that he says at one point in Romans. He says, look, creation itself is groaning waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. It's as if we've destroyed the universe and think they're tilted wrong because of what we have done. We're at odds with our best selves. You and I don't go through every day feeling blissfully about ourselves and productive and yes. We're at odds with who we are. We are at odds with God. And ultimately, we get separated We are at odds with our own lives and we die. We are, God says here, cursed. Cursed are you. Now look, I don't want you to think about this like Harry Potter. This isn't hocus pocus magic, God. That's not what the ancient Near Eastern mind would have understood when it heard this word curse. What they would have understood from this was kind of a combination of like a prophetic announcement and just wise acknowledgement of reality. You know, there are times when if you're old, and I know some of you are old, 
If you're old, some young person comes to you and says, hey, I'm thinking about quitting my job and starting a company selling eight-track cassettes. And you say, you know, I would keep my day job. The technology is a little past eight-track cassettes. No, no, I'm so excited about it. They were going to make them really sexy. At that point, you would be well within your rights, and you would be right to say, okay, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to start this company. You're going to invest all of your time and your energy and the money that you've stored up to this point and it's going to vanish. You know what you're doing? You're saying, cursed are you if you do that. You're going to end up flat broke. So God says to the woman, this is what you've done. You have created tension between every succeeding generation. And now you have created angst and tension and conflict between you and the one you were supposed to be one with. In fact, he'll rule over you. And this is what you've done, Adam. You're at odds with the earth. This is what you've done. Cursed are you. And you're going to die. I told you. So, how does God respond? This is important. Let's end with this. Three things. So in the face of this cosmic treason. As I said last week when Anu read the first part of Genesis 3, we don't have large enough language to describe how important and how big this is. How critical this is for us to understand about ourselves and the grace that it enables toward others. Well, we also need to get here what God's response is because it's buried in this text. It's here. How God will ultimately respond is buried here from the very beginning. God gives hints about how He's going to respond. You know what God could have done and should have done? Oh my gosh. Kaboom! Let's start over. Because, Adam, you are... Mike, you're worthless. Boom! And you're going to produce generations of puppies that are mangy and their teeth are rotting. They're going to be eating the wrong kinds of foods. They're not going to live long. They were supposed to run on my property in the green grass, lick my hand, I tossle their hair, and I feed them every time they're hungry. But no, cursed are you. You don't even know where my property is. And neither will any of your children. So, he should have said kaboom. This is what God does. First of all, He pursues us. He's pursuing some of you this morning. Don't you sense it? Five or six minutes ago, I started to realize that God is pursuing someone this morning in a way that you've never felt Him pursue you. This morning. Last week, we talked about how God came after them. Let's put a little bit more flesh on those bones. This is what He does. So notice the dialogue. God comes to Adam and he says, he's walking in the cool of the day looking to hang out. He already knows there's going to be no more hanging out. But he needs them to get it. He does what recovery people would call an intervention. 
Where are you, Adam? Um, over here in the bush. I was hanging out because I was, I'm naked. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree? I want you to own this, Adam. I want you to recognize what you've done. Have you broken the only real command that I gave you? Adam, what happened? He comes after them. It's a little unfriendly, but it's the truth, and it's what's needed. He pursues them. He's pursuing us today. There are a few of you for whom God is pursuing you today, saying, I love you. Surrender. Because you and I, we got this thing. And surrender. Let go. Let me have this. Trust me. There are a few of you whom God is pursuing today, and He's saying, What have you done? Where are you? Who told you you were naked? He pursues us. Secondly, He covers us. Verse 21, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. It's really interesting. Back in verse 7, after they ate the apple, they look and they, <laughs> they realize, Adam realizes that Eve has lady parts. And he realizes that Adam does not. He's got other means of travel. And so they try to clothe themselves. And it doesn't work. And for some of us, this is our full-time job. Trying to keep ourselves covered and clothed. And only God can do that. Only God can really cover us. He alone can protect us. He alone makes our shame go away. You know, in that same letter, the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians in Rome when he makes that unbelievable pronouncement. It takes him two and a half chapters. What are two and a half chapters for us? It was pages of parchment for him to kind of get to the point where he says, look, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is what we were intended for. All of us have sinned. Then it comes as a surprise when he lays out the rest of the doctrine and God's response. It comes as a surprise when he's able to say in chapter 8, so therefore, because of all of this stuff that God has done for us, to us, among us, through us, in us, by Jesus Christ, therefore, he says in chapter 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For what the law couldn't do, weak as it was through the flesh. You know, the law of God set out the standard, but it couldn't be accomplished. What it couldn't do for us, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, in the likeness of original sin, but not exactly original sin. God did it. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh without condemning us. Get to that in a second. He covers us. He covers our shame. 
So there's no condemnation. This is the last thing he did. God is in our lives undoing what Adam and Eve did. Right? He pursues us, he covers us, and he undoes. He undoes what Adam and Eve did. Listen to this. Did you notice this? Some of you heard this before, but if you haven't, I want you to hear it now. This is incredible. This is what he says to the serpent. Cursed are you, because you're going to crawl on your belly, eat dust all day long. Then he says this. Hence at the woman, he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. There is going to be this spiritual dissonance. There's going to be spiritual war between you and the descendants of Eve. Constantly. You will want and strive and want them. And they will be mine. And you will be at war with them. Then he adds this. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Hold on. This is cool. And between your offspring and hers. Singular. He will crush your head. And you will strike, singular, His heel. Not them and their. In other words, it sounds like that someone is going to come from Eve. Someone is going to come from Eve who will crush Satan. And in the process, he will be killed. Sound like anybody you know? That's Jesus. Paul even makes the argument in that same book in Romans. It's worth reading. Paul makes the argument that Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus did what Adam should have done. Adam should have cut the head off of the snake, but he didn't. But Jesus did. Okay, I want to end with this. Colossians. It's got this great image. Chapter 2 of Colossians. If you have a Bible, go there. It's one of those little books in the New Testament. I always say toward the back, but it's in your phone, so just type it in. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. I want you to listen carefully to this. We're going to end with this. Time for us to wrap up. So listen. This is so awesome. 2, 13 through 15. Listen to this. So this is again Paul writing to a different group of Christians. It's kind of making a similar sort of argument. Makes it real short. So he says this. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, when you were dead, he's just acknowledging reality, right? Because you're still breathing. But when you and I are apart from God, we are the walking dead. We're moving toward the grave. We are experiencing, living, the separation, the distance, the angst, the between us and all of our relationships, us and the earth, us and God, us and ourselves. We feel it. And we've learned this morning, that's the reality. It's not just what we feel. You want to get really depressed. When you feel depressed, that's the reality. Our lives are that bad. But they're also glorious. They're also glorious. Because God is undoing all of that. And He's bringing us back to the mansion so that we can run and we can have again what Mike lost for us. So, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, your nature, you have a bent nature. It's not just little things that you do. 
You have a nature bent toward this. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us our sins, having canceled the written code. And what he's referring to is the moral code of the universe that he built into the fabric of space and time, which he asked Moses to write down some of. That written code which stands over our lives and constantly pronounces judgment against us. God canceled that because of what Jesus did. Canceled it with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Listen to this phrase. Oh my goodness. And having disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Good grief! This is what that means. But there's an old movie that stars Humphrey Bogart. It's called The Desperate Hours. And in The Desperate Hours, three criminals, Frederick March, I think, is one of them, three criminals come and they take Humphrey Bogart and his family hostage. And they spend several days in desperate hours, threatening to kill them. I can't remember what he wants from them or what they're trying to extract from them. At the end of the desperate hours, hours and hours, eventually, one of the captors is sitting, I think, in the kitchen with Humphrey Bogart and his son. And the criminal has a gun on them. criminal falls asleep. Humphrey Bogart takes the gun, and he empties the bullets. criminal wakes up and grabs his gun. And Humphrey Bogart looks at his son and says, Okay, listen, I want you to listen carefully to what I'm going to say. And I want you to do exactly as I say. When I say go, I want you to stand up from this table and run. Run out the door and go get help. And the criminal goes, No, you can't. No, I'll shoot you. Look at me, son. Trust me. Stand up and run. Go! The kid stands up and runs. And you know what he hears? Click, click, click. Because the gun has been disarmed. So every time you hear, oh, you're no good. You'll never be able to do Look at what a horrible parent you are. You're a joke. You're a loser. Look at what you've looked at. Look at what you've eaten. Look at what you've done. What you need to do is stand up and run to God. And what you'll hear behind you is not the sound of bullets. You'll hear click, click, click. Because it has been disarmed. That's what God did. Let's pray. Father, I don't want us to run away from you this morning. That's our habit. So I pray that you will penetrate our busyness and our to-do schedule. Because, Lord, we know below that is a harder, the harder surface of our shame and our guilt. And then underneath that, God, is the almost intractable layer of our self-justification. And today, we want to give you permission to penetrate all the way down, to pursue us to the bottom. 
Lord Jesus, if there's anyone here this morning who has never experienced your love and never felt the burning freedom of the grace that you offer, I pray in your name that you would speak words of life right now. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would set someone free. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who needs to be called to renewal, they need to get it right with you, then, Lord, I pray that they will hear the gentle fierceness of your challenge. What have you done? But they'll recognize in it your pursuit of them and that you bring garments to cover them and you bring the power to undo all that Adam did. Father, for those of us this morning who just need your grace, we are so tired or we're so caught up in a private sin or we've been working so hard to justify ourselves, to keep all the balls in the air. We want to stop. No, we should. We've heard your whisper. We don't know how. Pray, Lord, today that you would speak into that. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. In the strong name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.